economic, political, social and security conditions in the Indo-Pacific region are being changed fundamentally by rapid advances in technology. What impact is this having on developing countries and what adjustments are needed in development policy and practice? Find out from this podcast of a panel at the 2019 Australasian Aid Conference. Okay, we might start because I'm told we have a a sharp 9.30 finish. Um, So good morning, everyone. Uh, My name is Saku Akmimana from DFAT, um, and I'd like to invite you to this panel this morning on the implications. We can hear you off the back, please. Do we have a speaker? There isn't. isn't. Okay, I'll just project. Maybe everyone can scratch in. There's lots of space. The front. (laughs) Okay, there are several of us on the panel this morning who are not morning people, so please do be kind. And and while the panel's on technology, I had almost every known technological disaster in preparation for the panel this morning, so... Um, before I begin, I'd like to thank Bill Cole and Benita Chudley for pulling, putting in the hard yards and pulling this panel together. Um, everyone uses at least some elements of technology in their work, and there's a general awareness that advances in technology has implications for the future of work, security and development. But in general, there's little cognizance of just how fast that change will be, indeed how exponential Um, the pace will be, nor its breadth in terms of converging technological advances and the potential disruptive effects economically, politically and for security. Business is probably a bit further ahead in grasping the enormity of the likely challenges ahead and their implications, but few researchers, government officials or aid practitioners um, are really on the case, both in, in Australia in terms of our domestic policy and in terms of thinking about development policy and practice going forward. Part of this disconnect is that tech experts and social scientists often have different lexicons, indeed languages, and we need to bridge those uh, languages and worldviews. Indeed, at a, at a dinner the other evening, a senior Australian uh, government decision maker said he literally didn't understand nor had the imagination to understand what some of the new jobs that will be created in a gig economy will look like or what, it, what they entail. I don't like to make gross generalisations, but generally those who are the bridges in this discussion are, are those who are equally comfortable with words and numbers um, in, in kind of uh, managing this divide. <laughs> Um, Rapid advances in technology with 5G and IPv6 around the corner will profoundly affect societies throughout the globe, but will potentially have asymmetric impacts on the Indo-Pacific region. The fourth industrial revolution, characterised by innovations such as artificial intelligence, automation and biotech, are likely to transform existing systems of production, management, regulation and governance. Yi Zhao, one of our panellists, will talk about that in great length, um, all at some length this morning. Um, advances in technology are also converging with other mega trends, including rapid, uh, rapid demographic transition and the growing consequences of climate change. 
um, but again are likely to impact um, uh, in Asia quite profoundly. So our panellists this morning are Bill Cole, uh, Yizhao Zhou, uh, John Carr and Claire Aiken. Bill is a Senior Advisor for Program Strategy at the Asia Foundation, where he served for over two decades in a range of roles in headquarters and country offices, straddling program strategy, innovation and learning, and he has deep expertise in issues of governance and economic reform. Uh, a key area of focus is on new thinking about development and stability challenges in advanced middle-income countries. And for the past decade, he's been tracking information technology advances and their political, economic and regulatory impacts. Uh, Yijia Zhou is a research fellow at uh, the Crawford School of Public <laughs> Policy. Um, her PhD, she has a PhD in economics from the ANU, um, and her research encompasses a range of topics in economic growth and development um, and understanding the drivers of inclusive growth. Uh, her PhD thesis examines channels of technological catch-up and industrial upgrading in economic development. John Carr is the Senior Director for Technology Programs at the Asia Foundation. He manages a multi-million dollar multi-country portfolio of technology initiatives in Asia. Uh, for instance, through a partnership with Google, John oversees projects in Asia that address misinformation, fake news and digital identity issues online and in collaboration with DFAT and APNIC. His team is supporting cybersecurity dialogue in the Pacific. Clay Aitken is a senior advisor, strategic engagement and capacity building at APNIC, um, the regional internet registry for the Asia Pacific. In this role, he works to promote APNIC's vision of a global open and stable, um, and sorry, global, open, stable and secure internet access for the region's 56 economies as well as internationally. Um, prior to this role, he worked in a variety of, of uh, policy roles um, in Australia and in uh, Washington. So this is a really interesting group in terms of the point I was making about the need to bridge languages and epistemologies. John and Clay both started as social scientists and expanded uh, into tech. Bill started in science and technology and grew into a social scientist. Uh, Yi Zhao is an economist who focuses on the implications of technology for patterns of production. So we're going to um, structure this session a little differently from some. The panellists will do um, short uh, presentations of seven or eight minutes. Um, I'll ask a few follow-up questions to te tease out some common themes and then we'll take some um, questions from the floor. So uh, first I'll invite Bill to introduce some of the key issues around tech-driven disruption and the challenge for developing Asia. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, and, and thanks for coming out at such an early, bright and early, early, early time in the morning. Um, As Saku, as Saku has said, uh, no one engaging in, in the development business, in the, in, the, in the work of the development community the way all of us do, could possibly miss the, the, uh, the, the, the impact that changing technology is having on our lives and our, and our work. One way or another, we're all tapping into te technology in, in, some, in some form. Two questions. First, 
Are we as knowledgeable as we should be about the scale and the speed and the nature of, of those tech-driven uh, transformations? Um, and second, do we have a, a full sense of, of how and how much emerging technologies and the, uh, and the effects they're having on, on all the systems that, that we're dealing with, how much that will affect developing countries in our region? Our argument from up here would be that um, the changes now underway uh, uh, will so affect d the development context that it will require some rethinking uh, in some ways, rethinking of certain aspects of development policy and practice. And we'll see in just a second, we're on the verge of, we've all seen change, but we're on the verge of some, some major changes. Um, in just these few minutes at the, at the beginning, I just want to give a, a, a sense of the scale and nature of, uh, of tech-driven talent challenges that we're, that we're talking about. Um, I'm going to assert that the vast majority of disruptive change that we're seeing in, across a whole front uh, that includes economics, politics, security, ecosystems and agriculture, sociocultural systems, and others, are ultimately being driven by underlying changes and accelerating changes in, in, uh, in advances in technology. So what do we mean by advancing technology? What is, what is, what, what is that? And first, let me just make a, a few points. First, the technologies that we're, uh, is the technologies that we're talking about. The usual answer when we think about that would be uh, mobile communication, uh, robotics, big data analytics, AI. It's, it's, it's always a cluster of, of, of three or four uh, things, and those are core. But it's, that's too limited. Uh, depending on how you slice and dice it, uh, there may be a hundred core technologies that we're talking about, and thousands of secondary technologies that grow out of those. And they're all interacting and, and synergizing in, in, in various ways. Uh, can, you, can you slip this up just one one slide. So I just have one, one slide. Now, of those hundreds, thousands of different technologies, we've heard, many of us have heard of, of 20 or 30 of those. Uh, there's many that are simply not visible uh, to us. I just put a few of these that I thought of while, while, I, was, while I was getting preparing my, 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 my work uh, comments here. And it's really quite broad. I think most people would get most of those you might not think about things like advanced materials. Um, CRISPR's uh, uh, Cas9 gene splicing. Some people have heard of that. This is starting to show up on news shows in the States. We'll talk about that uh, later. Um, Nanosatellite technology. The ability to send up a satellite that only weighs 10 kilograms that does what uh, something the size of a car used to do, allows the spread of many, many more satellites going up, and the possibilities coming out of that are immense. And the ability of players who could never do, be involved in that before will broaden. So we're talking about a very broad front of, of technology. Second important point of tech, on technology is that the pace of the advance is accelerating. Uh, most of you will know the, the, the concept of Moore's Law in, uh, uh, in silicon chips. Um, the idea that every 18 months to 24 months, you double the computing capacity of a, of a, of a chip in a certain, in a certain volume. Um, most of these technologies, many of these technologies, 
have an underlying Moore's law, meaning they're doubling uh, or tripling over a period of two or three three years. So this is an accelerating uh, process of change. In some ways, um, I used to use the word a tsunami of change coming, but that that metaphor is wrong because a tsunami comes in at a certain pace, and it sort of crests, and then it recedes. The, te- the wave of technological change that we're seeing is accelerating, and it has no crest. It doesn't, it doesn't slow down. It keeps going. So the rates of change will just keep going. Things, parts of our societies, our economies, uh, our culture that, are, that, are, that aren't able to keep up, you'll see increasing gaps. And, and, uh, and I'll come back to that in a second on the idea of disruption. Now, the third point I want uh, to make is that um, we're just entering what many of you, some of you will have a sense of this, a good sense of this, uh, the fourth industrial revolution. And, and not to go into the details of what the four revolutions are. Um, but they really they refer to historical periods, and uh, the third the third industrial revolution was the digital revolution started in the eighties. Um, it refers to advances in in technology that drove the shift from analog to uh, to uh, uh, from analog to digital and mechanics mechanical devices um, and electronic and mechanical devices. Um, that had to do with the personal computer, I mean, key features of the personal computer, the internet, and early stages of automation. The fourth industrial revolution that we're just, just moving into right now builds on the digital revolution. Um, But the basis for the fourth industrial revolution has to do with advances in communications and uh, uh, connectivity rather than the underlying technologies. Blindingly fast G5 wireless that John may talk about, Internet of Things, machine learning, autonomous decision-making, and control are all key features. Um, These innovations, in turn, are are enabling breakthroughs in many fields, autonomous robots, uh, artificial intelligence, biotech, nanotech, quantum computing, uh, additive manufacturing, and uh, autonomous vehicles, and so on. Well, these are the technologies. But each of them is affecting something much larger. Now, in, the, uh, in terms of development, um, much of this will have positive implications. It will open up new possibilities. But there's also a darker side. Uh, the impact of technology is primarily driven through disruption. You think of it, uh, you, uh, uh, the actor that seizes on a new innovation first and is the first mover has the ability to seize an advantage. And that disrupts existing systems. Now, we normally think of that as pretty good. That's what creative destruction is all about. But as that scale of disruption increases, the underlying ability to predict anything starts dropping. Um, And the implications for economics, politics, conflict, security, all that list that I was giving before are are huge. Can this be managed? Can we manage the process? Can we in in the more developed economies manage it? There's a question. Um, developing economies very clearly will not have the capacity to do this on their own. Um, the, the part of the problem is that um, the introduction of of new innovations that are disruptive is so distributed. It's happening on and a million competitors looking for an advantage in all of these different fields 
that makes it almost impossible for a regulator or someone trying to maintain some kind of order to even see the disruptions. And second, once you can see them, um, then there's the battle over, well, is it a positive, is it, is it, is it negative enough that it warrants regulatory intervention? Um, and then thirdly, once you've decided that, the pace of governance is very slow. It takes two or three years to get a law or regulation actually in, in place. So how does all this affect development work? Bottom line is that in the next decade, uh, we'll begin to see uh, increasing tech changes in almost every area that we're, uh, of development that we're working in. Uh, economics is what we're going to see in development economics. We'll see it in disruptions in political and democratic politics. Uh, governments, rising government surveillance, um, uh, agricultural improvements, health systems, brought away of a huge array of impacts related to security. Many of these changes will be fast and unpredictable. So it's not like you can prep for it. What you're doing is you're prepping for un unpredictable, uh, unpredictable uh, changes. Um, our panel just 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 in these this hour will will give a a taste of some of this and how it's going to affect the uh, uh, development work. Um, but for example, uh, in a minute, Yishao will talk about the impact of rapidly advancing automation, which has the potential to undermine the past 60 years of rising prosperity uh, and, and poverty reduction in Asia, which is based on export-oriented industrialization. And she'll go into the details of that. That's pretty big. What's going to replace that? Uh, John's going to talk about emerging digital economy in various ways um, that developing countries need to embrace and need to prepare for. Need to prepare for. But traditional ideas about how to how to spur growth and how to support it, um, you'll see, are are in many ways ineffective and can be counterproductive. We've got to be thinking in in new ways. Um, and Clay's going to talk about rapidly growing cybersecurity challenges, um, which, if they're not adequate, if, if developing countries, organizations, businesses, uh, governments, if they don't keep up with that, with that, that rapid, increasing pace of, of cyber threats, the whole game, the whole, the whole boat will sink. Um, so, there, so again, there's both the positive and the negative, and, and uh, um, talk, okay, we'll, we'll sort of tease that out of us as we go. That's my beginning. Thanks. Right, I'll turn to Michelle. Figures and data uh, that's easier to convey some key messages. But first, thanks, thanks to Saku and um, Bill for the uh, comprehensive and uh, deep introduction to this issue. Um, I think what I'm going to talk about actually is closely linked uh, to what Bill has just described um, on this issue of uh, the rise of automation and uh, the implications for economic growth, income inequality, and development. So uh, I uh, probably, as, as John um, pointed out, uh, I'm going to talk more about uh, 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 this implication of the rise of Industry 4.0, uh, advanced robotics, uh, and artificial intelligence um, 
for um, production, um, whereas later um, John will focus more on the uh, digital economy, uh, which is, uh, as we will see very soon, a bit different. Uh, these two aspects of um, the rise of automation uh, is a bit different. So um, first of all, uh, we have seen a, a new wave of technological progress upcoming. upcoming. Uh, they refer to the rise of Industry 4.0, uh, advanced robotics, big data analytics, and artificial intelligence. So what is Industry 4.0. Uh, essentially, it's enabled by four key drivers. Uh, firstly, we have rising data volumes, uh, computation power, and connectivity, as pointed out by um, uh, uh, Bill. Uh, that what underlies it is the Moore's law. Um, and then we have this emergence of analytics and business intelligence capabilities. And importantly, new forms of human uh, machine interaction, such as interfaces, inter touch interfaces and augmented reality systems. Uh, and then we have improvements in transferring digital instructions to the physical world, such as robotics and 3D printing. So we can see that this is really uh, a more closely linked um, um, uh, uh, IT side of things, digital side of things, and the physical production side of things. So um, now, uh, so what is, for this wave of technical change, uh, as an economist, uh, we often get asked, are you worried about uh, its impact on employment? Um, so I, I'll prob uh, this, this is a complex issue, as, uh, as Saku and Bill has pointed out, have pointed out. But uh, when we think about this, I think, um, firstly, we, we want to know what's, how is it different from the previous waves of technical change? What are the differences, uh, potential difference between this wave of technical change and the previous ones? So. Uh, I think the, per the most important difference is actually in this wave of technical change, it's, it's, uh, it looks like the capital or, or the rise of te technology is, is replacing not only low-skill but also high-skill labors. So essentially, you are seeing uh, machines um, becoming this indistinguishable uh, from humans. Um, so that's uh, what is different from for this wave of technical change from the previous one. Previous ones, we have capital uh, complementing labor. But in this way, potentially, we are seeing machines becoming uh, uh, similar to human beings. So we know the famous Turing test. Uh, what is the Turing test? Tur Turing test says, uh, can you distinguish, when you, uh, when you uh, have conversation with, uh, when you communicate with a machine, can you distinguish it <laughs> from a human being? Uh, if a machine passes the Turing test, essentially it becomes non-distinguishable from a human being. That's the AI, uh, the real AI that we are looking at uh, from now. So. Uh, as Jeffrey Sachs, uh, a famous uh, development economist, uh, a macroeconomist, has has defined, uh, what is the essential quality of AI? It's allowing output without labor. So I think that's the threat uh, or that's the concern we are looking at. But um, but uh, in thinking about the real implementation of it, it whether it will actually create new jobs uh, or not, uh, I think requires the context uh, that we are putting this or implementing this uh, uh, technology. So uh, now I want to briefly show the um, uh, data on uh, ro industrial robots. So as, as I point out, I think there's a complex issue. Uh, industrial robots is just one aspect of uh, this new wave of technical change. We've got artificial intelligence, which is, uh, I think, a more advanced in some ways uh, or different from industrial robots. But industrial robots is an aspect to it. So we are seeing uh, the rise of uh, uh, estimated annual shipments of industrial uh, 
robots by regions. Clearly, uh, here Asia slash Australia, which is the region we are in, uh, are seeing a rapid pickup of uh, estimated annual shipments of industrial robots. So that uh, this trend is definitely taking place in our region. Um, and then uh, if you look at the um, supply of industrial robots by country, uh, China is growing as a rapidly growing market. Uh, but later we will see China is uh, is a rapidly growing, growing market. However, in terms of intensity, it's actually not uh, uh, high uh, compared with uh, Korea and more advanced countries. So this is just a snapshot of the, uh, uh, the intensity of robots. Uh, Asia average is 63. Uh, what leads uh, Asia is actually Korea at a very uh, almost 10 10 times in magnitude. Uh, but China is uh, catching, I mean, it's above Asia average, but far away from uh, the level of Korea is. So there's a long way to go. Uh, then later we could come back to this uh, uh, um, figure. I think what drives uh, automation partly is population aging across the region. And then associated with then a consequence of population aging is then the rising labor cost uh, in the region. So when you see rising labor cost uh, and um, aging in the society, then there is motivation to replace labor with um, with robots. So part of the underlying uh, demographic and uh, uh, economic change. Um, okay, so I just quickly cover uh, the consideration about the rise of robots and income inequality. We'll probably come back to this in our discussion later on. Um, but um, but I think uh, I just want to show one figure for U.S. wages, uh, real wages, uh, since 1991. Um, so what we see is uh, U.S. real wages by education level. Uh, it is comparing. So if we think of 1991 level as fixed, it's a real level. Uh, it's the real purchasing uh, power of the wages at that time. And how does the real wage over time compare with that level? Uh, so we see for U.S., uh, for the very, very well-educated uh, individuals, they at least in 2015 have higher uh, purchasing power of wages than what they are having uh, back in 1991. But for those who are having low education, they really suffer. And in, in actually post-GFC, their real wages uh, become lower even than their 1991 level. So for economists, what is driving this, uh, we think of trade, and then we think of uh, technical change. But it's unclear which one is uh, more important. So um, yeah, so on the, economic, on the implication of automation for development, uh, we can come back to this later in the discussion. Yeah, thank you. Um, this is a very interesting discussion that uh, focusing on development issues in the region and technology's role in this process. I think one of the things we're talking about here is are there headwinds that technology is sort of introducing that are going to disrupt the progress of development? So the future of work is is one uh, I would call that a headwind. We have a, we have a potential problem. The robots may in fact be coming for us. That might be a problem. We're not sure yet, really. I think that that's not clear. Evidence isn't really entirely convincing that this is happening now, and we're not sure if it's going to happen in the future, but it's quite reasonable to assume that that is the case, that AI and robotics and so on and so forth, this is going to affect manufacturing. It's going to reduce job demand. It's going to have a negative potential impact on growth in the region. This has particular implications for middle-income countries. So that's a real problem that technology, I think, is 
is at the root of. Um, but maybe to try to put a, a more positive spin on things or try to think about things in a way that's, that's interesting, that also incorporates tech and innovation and how we think about growth is to think about the region's people, that the human capital in the region I think of as being this potentially untapped resource uh, that is potentially, potentially like a countervailing force for, for many of these headwinds, particularly things like <coughs> Uh, because when we talk about automation, we're talking about certain kinds of manufacturing jobs, but we're not talking about knowledge workers and the creation of new products and services in the region that could serve new needs. And these are likely to be digital solutions, and they're likely to be created by what I call Asia's new creative class, which is an emerging community of young, innovative thinkers who have the desire to create new products and services in the region. They want to be the next Bill Gates or Mark Zuckerberg. They have aspirations. But there's also a, another group of these young people who actually want to play a role in promoting uh, sustainable development outcomes. And there are lots of ways to make money serving those needs as well. As long as you do it digitally and you keep your marginal costs down and you do it at scale, you can do really amazing things to attack SDG issues using technology. So we want to unlock that resource. I mean, I think that that's what I mean when I think about the human capital opportunities in the region, as uh, Paul Romer calls them, endogenous forces that drive uh, innovation in an economy and propel its uh, GDP growth um, and help it become a, a first world country. And, you know, these are important parts of the process. And so how do we unlock that? Um, and again, I want to make sure I define this class of people that I'm talking about. These are knowledge workers. These are these are people that want to be innovators. They're people on YouTube learning how to code. They're doing all this cool stuff that you can do now that you couldn't do 20 years ago. And I, I want to really focus on this community because it's an emergent group that we can, that we can really think about in a, in a creative way. Um, the immediate thought, thought, I think, is to look back and say, well, okay, so where do these people come from? And, and oftentimes it's, we always say, well, Silicon Valley, right? I come from Silicon Valley. I grew up there. And I watched it change. Um, but I think looking back, it's kind of like a sedimentary kind of thing. We're looking back at the past and old structures and old systems. And you've got to really think about this in, a, in, a, in an interesting way, I think, because, you know, in the old days, you had to go to Silicon Valley to put your hands on a, on a computer. This is a long time ago, but this is the, originally, that was one of the reasons you went to places like this, because that was the only place there were hardware that you could actually touch and experiment with and learn how to use. That's not the case anymore. We know that. Things have changed. My, my device here is faster than any machine you could get access to at Stanford University in the 80s by orders of magnitude. I think that that's an important consideration. Um, there are other features of this myth of Silicon Valley that we all talk about, um, but I want to highlight a few of them and just say things like, you know, access to education resources. Now, nowadays, you don't go to university to learn how to code. I'm sorry, but it, we'd like to think that that's the case, but you don't learn best practices in an institution. You learn them amongst your peers. You learn them online. You access the best practices by doers and makers who are sharing their experience on the Internet. And you integrate with that community, and you grow as a person. You don't go to Stanford to learn how to code. It's almost like a trade craft. And it's something that you pick up through other mechanisms now. And that's not the way it was a long time ago. We had to, we had to use books 
you know, to read. Now, like, that stuff is not as essential now. And I think that's another different quality that, you, that is open and accessible to all the people that I'm talking about, this emerging class, right? So we don't need Silicon Valley uh, in some respects. You don't need to go there to access people to collaborate with because you can do it online. <coughs> Collaboration tools are a dime a dozen, they're all free, and you can work with, I do it all the time, I work with people in, in Nepal to build my uh, technology tools that we're trying to integrate into our Asia Foundation programs. And we do this every day, and everyone does it. And in fact, I think it's gonna disintermediate Silicon Valley in some respects, because people don't have to be there anymore to participate in the creation of products and services. I think that's another difference. Uh, another one is just gainful employment. You don't have to go there now to get a job. You can get a job anywhere, online. You can do the things that need to be done remotely. And so those are features that have changed in the Silicon Valley a myth that I think are really important. We incorporate those into our thinking about how we're going to work with these people in the region. But there are some other things that are still problematic, and I guess this is what I would just highlight for consideration of policy people, is that it's still an issue for, for the, the legal norms, established legal norms in the legal system itself that protects intellectual property and allows people to monetize their creations is a factor that is still very weak in the region. We need to work on that to make it possible for these people who can already learn how to code and build products and services, get access to equipment and hardware at a low cost to monetize their dreams. And so IP protection is really important and that's a policy dimension that we need to think about. Tax policy issues, so that you don't overburden the businesses as they begin to grow, is another thing that governments in the region need to get right to encourage entrepreneurship and innovation and startups. And uh, data cross-border data policies, another consideration, which is governments meddling in the affairs of startups so they can't co-locate their data on Amazon Web Services, which makes a massive difference for people in terms of the the cost of doing business. And when governments say you can't do that, you shut off innovation. So how do we unlock this? How do we make it possible to create the conditions for this new creative class to excel? Corruption and other disruptors, and by other disruptors I mean government, doing all kinds of things that stymie or make it difficult for these people to do the things that they want to do. We have to deal with that problem. And then finally, I think access to capital is, the, is the, really the cornerstone of driving innovation in the region at the level that I'm talking about. Because currently you can make really cool products and services, you just can't pay anybody because you can't get anyone to invest in your business, to pay your salaries for your employees and do the things that need to do, need to do to grow your business. And that's another factor that you, know, you can't solve with the Silicon Valley model or whatever. This is a policy consideration for the region. And then also just to transition to the cyber question, I think policies that affect the safety and security of the region, both for consumers, for businesses, for government, need to be focused on and worked on very diligently in the Asia-Pacific region. To, again, to create the business environment for digital innovation and a digital economy, which the community of actors in the region now, the young generation, is really ready to drive wholeheartedly into a new era and to probably create new business opportunities for people that are going to replace the jobs that are going to be replaced by the robots. Excellent. Thank you for the, the beautiful transition. Um, so 
Bill mentioned the idea of disruptions, and unfortunately, my topic today is a bit more of an immediate and generally seen as a negative disruption, while the rest have both components built in. Um, so I've, I've been asked to talk about cybersecurity. Um, I've help, had a little bit of help from the Prime Minister and an unnamed state actor on Monday to kind of put the whole, whole conversation into context. Um, cybersecurity is a major issue that's facing um, governments, businesses, um, and, ev and everyone who uses the internet around the region. Um, whether it's an attack on political parties or parliament here in Australia or the DNC in the US, um, whether, I, I don't know if anyone here flies Cafe Pacific ever, um, a couple months ago you probably got an email saying, we lost a bunch of our frequent flyer um, uh, information in a huge data breach. Um, in March of last year, the Mirai botnet um, took out quite a large chunk of accessibility to some internet, major internet sites in the U.S. Um, WannaCry in 2017 was a major ransomware um, incident that luckily Australia, because when it first was released, it was nighttime here in Australia, wasn't as affected. But if you look across the globe at places like the UK, the National Health Service was taken out. Tons of people's computers were encrypted and they lost access. Um, and and I, I, I'm not trying to paint a picture of fear here, um, even though it might come off that way. Um, but just um, trying to put into context how important cybersecurity is. Um, and it's becoming increasingly evident um, every month when you open the newspaper that cyber is becoming a more present um, news item or a headline um, um, across, across the world. Um, but of course, when I mention these examples, uh, most of them are coming from developing economy or developed economies, sorry, um, major governments, major businesses, um, all across the board. So I really want to take this into the context of our region um, and what's happening on the ground. Because while those larger attacks, those larger data breaches might be capturing the attention of the media, um, cybersecurity is a serious concern for network operators and users all across the Asia Pacific um, uh, region. So APNIC, like uh, Saku mentioned, we're the regional internet registry for the Asia Pacific, which means we cover uh, 56 economies in the region. Um, and through that, we have quite a diverse community um, and about 16,000 members who are network operators. And that doesn't mean just the ISPs, but it also means banks, businesses, uh, academia, and all sorts of organizations that run network operations. Um, and through that community, we run a, a survey every couple of years, and top three concerns for 62% of the network operators across our region, so all these different sectors, all the different economies, from the Pacific to South Asia, East Asia, Southeast Asia, have named some element of cybersecurity as their top three concerns. 27% um, specify network security as their number one concern, and that includes 28% of network operators in LDC economies. So this isn't just an issue um, that affects certain networks in certain economies. This is something that everyone in all economies across our region are thinking about. Um, but what does that mean for uh, the developing community or the development community? Sorry. Um, so I want to very briefly touch um, in, in a short introduction on some of the intersections between cybersecurity and the, and the work of development. Um, and I'm going to look at three major components. Um, one is cyber and cybersecurity as a focus of capacity development. 
um, cybersecurity as a component of development work. A lot of the projects that folks are working on here involve the internet, involve applications or dependence in some way on, on, on potentially affected areas. And also cyber is a threat to development work, um, which is something that, again, I don't want to play the fear card, but it is a, it's an interesting component that a lot of us don't often think about. Um, so first, cybersecurity and cyber issues as a focus area um, of capacity building. Uh, so the secretary yesterday morning mentioned how connectivity and the internet is an enabler to development and an enabler to a lot of these other projects, but it needs to fit into a suite of other efforts. Um, and, and this is kind of the space that we're looking at when we're talking about direct cyber capacity building. Um, so cyber capacity building in the traditional sense has often focused on the hard infrastructure. And it's still, in many ways, a lot of the money is going into that infrastructure. Undersea cables is, is one of the hot topics um, in our region right now, but it has been a major development priority for decades. Um, developing uh, Wi-Fi for, for local communities, um, satellites for remote communities, and all sorts of very hard and tangible aspects of connectivity. But as part of that, oh wow, okay. <laughs> um, as, as, as part of that suite, we also need to look at less traditional forms of cyber, which include the network layer, whether it's network training, cybersecurity, and different aspects like that. And Australia is one of the, the economies that's looking into that with the international cyber engagement strategy boosting um, investment in these kind of areas from 4 million in 2017 to 25 million. So peanuts compared to some of these larger projects, um, but, but it kind of gives you an idea of the trend of how we're looking at cyber resilience and these different components within the suite of capacity building. So I'm going to rush through the next two, so I apologize. Um, I didn't realize I'd been going so long. Um, the second component is cyber as a component of development work. Like I mentioned, similar to connectivity just being one part of the larger suite, the internet component of a lot of the work that we're doing, whether it's applications, e-banking, um, work for remittances, or even research in uh, universities in remote areas, connectivity is integral to our work. Whether it's um, just connecting to send emails or what it's a whole application that's dependent on digital inclusion, without the connectivity and without the security that provides the confidence in the platform, um, it won't necessarily be uh, a, a successful tool because um, without connectivity, without security, you can't use the tool, no matter how well designed it is. And the last point, which um, we'll explore a little bit more later, is the idea of um, cybersecurity as a threat to development work. Um, development agencies are a really interesting space in terms of their trusted relationship with the community as well as with government. And it, it makes it a very lucrative and, and I'm sorry to say, kind of a, a soft target um, in cybersecurity issues. I used to work at the Australian Strategic Policy Institute down the road. Um, every couple months we would get a, an alert from the security response team um, saying, hey, we've got some malicious traffic, we're suspecting possibly it's state-based or from different areas. So a lot of these third-party agencies that work with government and the community um, are, are, are target. Um, so I'll, I'll just end it there and hopefully get to explore those three areas a little bit more. Okay, thanks, Clay. Um, the issues outlined today raise problems and opportunities at different scales. At one end are the cyber threats um, and to development organisations and programmes that Claire just mentioned. At the other are the challenges to the future development trajectories of developing Asia and, and other parts of the world. 
and, and in, for, for development practitioners, progress on many of the SDGs could be directly affected by the fourth industrial revolution and millions in Asia's emergent middle class could slide back into poverty. Um, that's more at the dark side of dark end of things. Um, and, and, and John's take is, is much more positive that this is just another instance of kind of Schumpeterian creative destruction and it's just at a scale that we've never seen before. Um, can I just, if I could go back to Yizhou um, first, um, China's perhaps a different uh, story to the rest of Asia. Could you talk a bit more about why China is heavily investing in these technologies and how it will address the dark side or the downside? Uh. Yes, I think um, China, the main motivate, one of the main motivations of uh, China's uh, heavy investment in industrial robots, and as, as well as development of service robots, these are two different types of robots, uh, is actually aging. Uh, we know that in 2029, it's expected that China's total population will peak. Uh, and that actually the growth of labor force in China has uh, stagnated. Um, so traditionally, uh, China's growth relies on labor-intensive uh, manufacturing. And then gradually, um, because of the development and the uh, growth uh, in technologi technological capability, um, China starts to climb up the value chain, global value chain. But um, still, uh, when, when, when labor force uh, declines uh, and then uh, wage cost rises, then uh, there is this uh, motivation to, uh, to uh, uh, maintain a comparative advantage uh, by uh, investing in machines or, or, or by industrial robots. So I think that's a big concern. Also on the service uh, robots, uh, aging is uh, uh, similar to Japan. Japan has a serious aging issue as well, and they are quite advanced uh, in uh, service robots uh, as well as industrial robots. So similar to Japan, um, the, the society in China is faced with this aging challenge. So for example, service robots could be in the sector of health, healthcare, um, uh, and, and that will actually uh, help address um, many of, I mean, a lot of issues uh, when the society is faced with aging. Um, so I think that's um, one of them, like uh, aging is uh, actually the decline in labor force is uh, what motivates this uh, investment. And how are the governments in the region doing, in contrast? Yeah, um, I think. Uh, uh, well, that I think for governments, the, that there's a trade-off for Chinese government. There is this trade-off that, on the one hand, when you invest in automation or robots, uh, you can uh, like uh, fend off or, or just delay this uh, loss of comparative advantage. On the other hand. We know that labor force at the moment uh, has a like a labor. The, the skill structure of labor force is slow changing. If you if you displace labor with machines uh, quickly uh, within short time, some of the uh, workers will lose jobs. Uh, and then this, there is concern about unemployment uh, uh, because you can't train people that quickly to upskill. So um, I think uh, on that then the the the. the Again, back to our question on whether uh, robots is going to create new jobs or replace labor. Uh, that is, that depends on how, uh, what's, 
whether there are new jobs created, whether because, for example, there is lower there is a lower production cost, and then that allows more uh, business or more lower cost provision, say, of service, and that will expand activity, and then the expansion of activity will create new jobs. So uh, I think there is this concern about the trade-off between. Uh, automation and unemployment. Uh, this similar to that applies to other countries in the region as well. Because for other countries, say other developing countries in the region, if they would like to uh, say uh, follow uh, East Asian uh, flying geese model, uh, where we first see Japan, so Japan and then Korea and then the uh, uh, Singapore, the newly industrialized countries, and then Ch China using this export oriented industrial uh, like globalization strategy. Uh, if other countries want to follow suit, uh, I guess there is the risk that uh, this uh, growth strategy may not um, be as viable as it, it used to be. Yep. Uh, John, um, I heard Sri Mulyani speaking a few months ago about um, the gig economy and the investments in human capital that being necessary to, to make this a reality. How difficult will this be to realise and how, how are governments in the, in the region kind of uh, tackling this or putting their mind to it? Uh, um, okay, so I'm not sure of the context of this statement and whether or not what was referred to was how to prepare people for the gig economy or to create just the kind of environment. innovative environment. But one thing that policymakers, I think, will need to grapple with, and it relates to the future of work, it relates to the gig economy, it, it relates to all of these new opportunities, is that I think technology is also making it possible, again, and I sort of mentioned that in what I was saying earlier, is old institutions, do we need to build another university to do X when, in fact, the opportunities for learning and upskilling and building your own human capital are available online in a variety of different formats. They're not all perfect, but there's a sort of such a mix of different options and services and solutions that governments and policymakers need to, I think, understand that there's this rich resource that can be sorted or, or advanced or featured or even subsidized for people so that they don't have to just go to you know, formal institutions to get upskilling and learning and develop their capabilities. But there are all of these other kind of informal processes that are, well, they're, they're private sector enterprises in many cases, or things like, well, there's, there are many different online learning services that you can access. We all know that. But do we have a comprehensive vision for how that works as it relates back to building the resources locally here? And can policymakers think more about that creatively? That's one of the things we're working on now with Microsoft is a kind of research project within ASEAN to look at this dimension of upskilling and building human capital. What are the resources that are out there that can drive that? So, okay. I'll take a couple of questions from the floor um, in a minute, but one last question for, for Bill before I do so. You mentioned the enormous regulatory challenges ahead and the fact that Policymakers just struggle to see what what is what is over the horizon. So, can you um, two, two, two related uh, parts of the question? Can you provide an example of where governments have not been able to keep pace with the the pace of change, with the pace of disruption? Sorry. And secondly, if we can't predict what lies ahead, how do we even go about thinking about regulating it? Um, okay, I mean, you could talk about a number of different possible um, 
examples of, 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 of government, the difficulty of government keeping up with the pace of change. Let me just take take one that's, that's right here, and it's and it's and I, and I mentioned it earlier. And it's, it's how many of you? How many of you know about CRISPR uh, Cas9 gene splicing? Gene splicing. Okay, just a few, and that's that's going to be showing up more and more on on uh, on on Nova and, and TV shows in Australia. Okay, so in the past, the whole process of gene splicing was was clumsy. It was difficult. Uh, and you ended up with genes floating around in cells that could go, that's part of the GMO worry. Uh, 2014, there was a jump ahead. And uh, we'll go into the details, but the ability, um, uh, uh, gene sequencing and the speeding up of our ability to gene sequence allows us to know where on a, on a strand of DNA certain genes exist. CRISPR-Cas9 allows us to very precisely cut and splice. That's a huge jump forward. Um, it allows you to very precisely change an organism. Uh, and there are huge implications of this for agriculture, uh, for dealing with, with medicines, a whole, a whole range of things. Next part of this, though, is that in, in four years, only four years, that's gone from a complex sort of a process. It's been narrowed down, narrowed down, and advanced where now we're talking about $1,500 worth of material and genes that you can buy uh, by, um, by mail order. Um, somebody with, with very little science background, trained for about two weeks, can do, do, do wild things like uh, introducing a, glowing, a glow gene into yeast and make a, a pile of dough that glows. Now, that doesn't sound like that. But but imagine that you're that that a that a that a, a minimally funded, minimally trained actor. What can be done in uh, uh, in terms of a very virulent bacteria, or, or a host, a suite of very virulent bacteria uh, that would either attack humans or attack rice crops, um, and then think that it's not the it's not the kid studying over. And this is these these courses are right over in Oakland across the across the bay from, uh, from San Francisco. Um, but it's not the, the high school kid or the college kid I'm worried about. It's every uh, organized crime group, uh, more sophisticated terrorist groups with, with, with real heavy agendas like, like ISIS uh, and rogue states. Um, they're not missing any of this. And this is just one technology. So where are we on the tech? That's something that's got to be regulated and, and paid a lot of attention to. Well, where are we on that? Well, as of a few months ago, we're having hearings, congressional hearings. On this one, the cat's out of the bag. It's, 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 it's too late. It, cat's out of the bag and rapidly proliferating curtains. So it's, 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 it's not possible to, to, to pull it back. And by the time you regulate and have something in place two or three years from now, the next wave of this will be there. That's the kind of thing I'm talking about. And you can talk about that with psychographics, the, the, the Cambridge Analytica stuff. Of uh, deep fakes that we're now starting to hear about. Um, any any range you, you would probably do fifty of those if you think about it for twenty minutes. Okay. On that note, I'll take um, some questions from the floor. Okay. Well, um, two rounds. Um, two, three, four, and then five, six, seven. Can I ask 
the panel about the likely diffusion of these technologies to the lowest income countries in Asia, just, I guess, noting that previous industrial revolutions, you know, diffusion is very unequal. So you have advanced technological practices in one country and they don't transmit to others. Okay, the number two. Uh, hi, Duncan Foundation. Um, I'd like to ask that John and the panel, I, I know that Foundation is involved in a project around digital platforms, uh, partnership for online platforms and sustainable development pops. And, and we can see platforms starting to appear in the region, whether it's Grab Taxi in Southeast Asia or WeChat in China. Um, and I'm interested for the panel's thoughts on how these big digital platforms as they develop and originate in Asia um, can have an impact on development work. I mean, we can see it in our daily lives. But how would these digital platforms impact it? Third question. Uh, thanks to the panel for the presentation. Really, some, some very interesting stuff. But I wonder whether actually the development discourse is still quite stuck up in terms of talking about developed countries versus developing countries. While we're also talking about disintermediation and kind of remote working, and those geographic boundaries actually are kind of not as relevant in the technological discourse. And you know, people like Google or Facebook have not necessarily gone developed versus developing. In case of manufacturing technology, for example, where there were physical assets, it was quite different. But in case of information technology and information space, it does not play by the rules of traditional industrial economy. And also wanted some reflections around sharing economy. I think there's a lot of this person mentioned and talk about formal economy and future of world, but actually there's a whole parallel universe around Reddits of the world, which are kind of diverging a lot of uh, new power uh, in terms of disintegrated, disintermediated development. And that's happening both across developing and developed countries. And that whether there needs to be a lot more focus around development cooperation in terms of human development and looking at the challenges that humanity as a total faces in the face of technological disruption. Okay, I think we'll go for responses to that round. You want, you want me to start, John? Yeah. I mean, either of you? Are we doing them in order, or should we no, just pick the one that we just want to answer? <laughs> response I'll, I'll, I'll respond to the lucky question. Last is, is can, I, can I answer uh, this question of digital platforms, um, which to me are really critical components of this next wave of innovation? And really, this is kind of a well-examined space, both from an economic theory standpoint and from a technical standpoint, that the capacity of online platforms to mediate transactions, to have one person put in a piece of information, it does a transformation on that, either sends it back to that person or sends it on to another, is, is a dramatic and new development at scale that we've never seen before. And so, for example, just a simple problem like in India, getting access to clean water, well, that's a complex problem at times, Big cities, sometimes it's very easy, but for other people, maybe it's not to get a regular delivery of bottled water that's clean, uh, how to select prices, how to select a vendor. There are all of these different operations and things that you need to do to think this through. Whereas a platform that is actually, there's a great example in, in India now that's, that's just a startup business that's providing 
you know, bottled water to people in local communities at scale and helping people solve this really kind of sometimes a complicated and challenging problem at a really low cost. Uh, and there's a whole range of different things that platforms can do beyond just connecting people with taxis that I think are critical to development. You know, access to new markets, access to access to, to information, obviously, access to water and services. Uh, this is something that's very interesting to the Asia Foundation. I did put a little booklet out there um, that touches on a whole range of these different types of platform solutions to SDG challenges. And it's something that we're really working on and experimenting with and exploring uh, because it's connected back to this thing that I was talking about earlier, which is the young people know what the problems are. And the solutions, given the new conditions, the new environment for innovation, is that these problems can be solved at scale at a relatively low cost, as long as you know the, the features of a challenge in your local community. And that's why we need to give this new young generation who want to build these services and solutions more tools and more opportunities, because the platforms are the things that they can build to solve the problems. So. Nijia, I'll ask you the question about diffusion of technologies to low-income countries. Yes, um, I think it's a, a very important question um, because uh, we understand that the long-run driver of growth is technical change. Uh, given our resources, uh, if we have better technology, uh, faster technological progress, we can, uh, with given resources, we can produce more. So if we have diffusion of technology to other countries, that will... Uh, uh, speeds up their growth as well in the long run. Um, but I think uh, on the diffusion, um, uh, I, I probably we still uh, need to go back to think about uh, the, re, uh, the, the some traditional factors that constrain growth. Uh, first of all, I think it's, uh, as pointed out, infrastructure. But uh, nowadays, the infrastructure that is required for new growth may be different from the old ones. It may not, it, the roads, say, uh, the, uh, the dams are still important. Uh, but on, on top of that, to, in order to tap into the connectivity uh, opportunity, you may need, uh, like, uh, other uh, ICT-related infrastructures. So it's a, a different set of infrastructure infrastructures. But still, I think um, the, uh, there is this connection between service, uh, which is all the digital economy is about, with, with the real, real world, real production side of it. Um, so those traditional infrastructures still have a role to play there. Uh, uh, you have better connectivity, you have better access to inter international market, but you still need uh, the physical uh, infrastructure there to to do the uh, to the do the business uh, and to do the operation. So, firstly, infrastructure. Then, I think um, still uh, human capital. Uh, Bill has this very uh, good example that uh, regulators never uh, keep pace with um, the changes. Similarly, yesterday he was mentioning that um, uh, the governments don't really know know what skills are in demand in the future. So, how to train people? That's really a hard question. But still, um, I think. Um, the ICT-related skills uh, are going to be important. Uh, uh, the STEM-related skills will be important uh, for diffusion of technology, for absorption of new technology. And lastly, I think it's still the uh, business environment, uh, those institutional quality uh, side of issues. Uh, these are, I mean, whatever type of economy we are looking, I mean, digital economy or new economy or traditional economy, uh, this uh, institutional quality issue, business environment issue, it, uh, are always going to be there, uh, I think. So improvement of that, uh, bridging the, uh, closing the gap between countries on business environment uh, is going to be important. Mm -hmm. 
Bill. Tell me look a little bit about because I think these are all these are all connected and they really go to uh, these questions are all connected in, in some interesting ways and they, they go to the, the heart of what we're trying to say about how we need to think as, as in the development community in some in some really different ways. Um, let me go to the geographic boundaries idea. Um, so we, we have to sort of break down what thing we're talking about. John's talking about a, a global ecosystem of possibilities of, I don't know if you used it when you used it, he often talks about the Silicon Valley is now on the cloud. It's everywhere. You can get at every, all the pieces everywhere. Um, and that's the global, that's the disappearance of certain kinds of, of, of boundaries. Regulatory boundaries are almost entirely national. Um, so you've got local, national, regional, global. Different things are going on at, at, at different levels. And it's the dissolving of certain kinds of, ball, of, 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 uh, of barriers or dissolving of certain kinds of older, of older constraints in some areas, but not in others, uh, that makes that gap or that, that, that disconnect is, is what creates, uh, creates uh, uh, problems. Now, the, if you, part of what John's talking about is that workers can participate globally. Things are regulated nationally. Um, but what's also, what also happens with these kinds of technologies, especially as you get into, into, uh, into Industry 4.0, is that the returns to the early movers are very high. Monop mon the, the emergence of, of natural monopolies, not secured with politics uh, and power, but natural monopolies, those, those are very, you, you look at a, you look at, especially on platforms, the, the work that John does, you look at Amazon. It's very difficult for anyone to, to, to now displace Amazon or Alibaba. But that's true in a, in a whole range of capital concentration. That you, you talk on one hand of displacement of labor, but that labor is being displaced with machines that are, that are owned and invested. So that technology is, a, is our returns to capital. And that's not geographically distributed. Um, so thinking about it in, in those ways. Now, um, but just now to go back to, to what um, Isha was saying, and I would really urge you to, 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 to think about it when we're thinking about our, our work. Infrastructure, human capital, uh, financial capital, and then I would add regulatory environment. Those are the key to being able to seize on these new opportunities and to avoid some of the downsides. But like Michelle said, it's a different set of infrastructure than we're normally thinking about. Different kind of human capital and the way you build is different. Um, different kinds of, uh, we have to have different new ways of, of getting at that at financial capital, and the regulatory environments have to move faster and, and work better to be sure the things that the worst side, the worst downsides are avoided and the good things are facilitated. The last thing I would add, if I could just add this, um, and it's partly to do with the boundaries, but there's another dimension in this I didn't mention in the beginning, but in the H Foundation, this is something we think about centrally, and that is with all this disruption, you have to think about the political impact. So when we talk about, you know, workers losing jobs and, and people being retrained to take other jobs, well, many of the jobs that are getting lost, you have to think about who's losing the job. Many of those people can't be retrained. They're either too old or they're not educated enough. They don't have uh, the, the capacity and the time and the ability to do that. They may not even know that exists. So for some, you can leap forward. Others are left behind. Question is, what do those others do? And you start thinking politically. Um, well, they'll mobilize, they'll get angry, they'll, they'll go into despair, and that's a lot of, in the West, 
uh, places like the United States, that's a lot of the populist, anti-globalist uh, rise. Well, that's not what's driving illiberalism and populism in the developing world now. It's coming from other things. But as you really start affecting large chunks of labor, you'll see a political reaction. And the, the really important point on this, and this is why democratic governance and thinking about how, how, we, how we need to invest and work on that. The problem is, is that when you have a big chunk of angry people in despair, po certain politicians will take advantage of that. And once they're in, once they're in place, they might, it, it, it could be, it, it, it doesn't necessarily lead to the ability to do technically sound long-term solutions. So the very ability to solve the problem is not simply knowing what to do, but the political disruption, but getting past the political disruption that comes from that, that economic, and, uh, economic and social destruction, to be able to even put in place the things that we will slowly be able to figure out should be done. That's a big story, but it's absolutely a development story. It changes how we should be thinking about all this. Okay. Uh, Hello, my name is Karina Veal. Regrettably, I, I came in late, so apologies if this issue was well handled. I just want to highlight um, an issue on the human capital, which is my field is employability, skills for employment. And across developing Asia, I've worked in a number of countries, we do see some of the governments starting to grapple with uh, preparing young people for technological, technology jobs. Not well, but starting. But what we don't see is the vocational training area, training and preparing young people for the technological component of an existing job. So, you know, Vietnam and even Myanmar are using um, automated processes in manufacturing. Everyone's using Malaysia, everyone's using automotive processes in automotive making. Um, there's so many existing jobs which have got now high technology components, and we don't see the vocational colleges picking up on that. They're not Wi-Fiing their campuses so the kids can become cyber savvy and learn themselves. So it's not just about preparing people for the high-tech jobs, but it's also at the lower levels. It's not just STEM at school and it's not just high-tech. It's that middle section that I really believe if we're committed to uh, increasing economic development, we have to prepare that massive amount of young people for those components. That was a comment. Cynthia from Kaiser, just a quick question. Um, in Sri Lanka, they unrolled 4G internet, and that's mainly featured in Colombo, but it doesn't access further out, the further you go. However, it was sold as a feature of gaining more access to information and education. However, a lot of those people further out, A, don't have access, and B, can't read, so then it doesn't allow them to have any educational benefit. I guess, building on Clee's point of allowing for digital inclusion, what are the ways we can increase more inclusion for those most disadvantaged? And what ways can we best support this for future endeavors, especially in donor projects? Hey, thank you. Uh, so, I mean, I think this question kind of follows on from that of my esteemed colleague. 
uh, but it's about geography uh, and how uh, technological forces today have enabled countries to selectively level up their geography. Uh, and I'm thinking particularly of Southeast Asia, which, based on you know, the current systems we've had in the last 20 years, have been able to integrate into value chains, uh, but have benefited hugely from their proximity to China. Uh, so I'm thinking, what happens as we move forward? Uh, what, what is the comparative effect, on one hand, to Southeast Asia, which may actually lose its comparative advantage of geography, and on the other hand, of the Pacific, which has, so far today, still suffered from the um, tyranny of distance. And I say this with the idea that I mean, in the long term, eventually, robots take everyone's job. Uh, but I'm curious about the transition. Yes. Um, just a thought. I spent some time uh, last year in Nairobi visiting the what they call Silicon Savannah. Um, Nairobi's answer to Silicon Valley with a number of the senior strategy and innovation executives out of some of the world's biggest international NGOs. And we met with a a very smart CEO of an innovation hub. She was Harvard or Stanford educated, worked at Google, gone back to Kenya to start the innovation hub, um, and had already seeded some pretty successful tech-based businesses. She was asked by one of the, the senior strategy executives there what international NGOs could do to help them. And uh, she just eyeballed her and said, get out of our way. <laughs> Which um, actually I thought was a great answer. But um, it does raise the question of, and she backed it up by saying, you know, you're coming in, you're teaching our people that they can get things for nothing, and actually we try to build a sustainable economy off the back of technology um, as, as one input into building a, a more robust economy than what is now a lower middle income country. How fair do you think that comment was, and what can international development organisations, whether they're NGOs or state, uh, development organizations, because I think the criticism would apply there as well. What would they and should they respond and uh, adapt? Okay. Clay, I'll ask you to take the trying to engage with the development community, um, there's been one clear challenge of almost siloing the focus that a lot of development organizations have. And it's not limited to development organizations. This happens everywhere. Um, and and I, I think that's the biggest challenge that, that you were highlighting there. There's so much focus on, okay, my focus is e-government or my focus is e-banking or the use of technology for agriculture and things like that. And, 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 and you, you, you take a perspective um, from where you're sitting saying, okay, here are all these cool tools that we can use. Um, let's implement it. Let's invest in the application. Um, roll it out. Everyone will love it, and it'll be great. Even with surveying to see what the needs of the community are and stuff around that application, if you have that siloed approach, you're only going to create a really great app. But if you don't take more of an ecosystem view where you're looking at digital literacy as well as sorry, access to connectivity, access to power in order to recharge your phones. That's a big problem in the Pacific um, in terms of the, the geographic challenge. Um, it's, it's, it's never going to succeed. And this is something that, that, that kind of pulls into the larger trend of how governments as well as development organizations and communities as a whole need to adjust to the shifting pace and the shifting dynamics of how the world works. Um, and, you know, this is very internet-y, so I apologize. 
the world is becoming increasingly interconnected. And that's not just in the sense of interconnection, the internet um, interconnecting networks, but the interconnection of issue areas. So as a technical organization, what we found very important, um, we have the technical expertise, but we don't necessarily have the development expertise. So for development organizations to be more open to taking this multidisciplinary approach and ecosystem approach and partnering, not necessarily building its own capacity in every single area, but partnering with different organizations so they can consider the wider picture of the technology elements of the, of the, of the more traditional development aspects of literacy and things like that when they're building all these fancy apps. Um, because everything is dependent on that foundation that allows you to use these tools. So focusing on that enabling environment, not just on the end goal, if that, if that makes sense. And it, and it kind of plugs into the idea of, of building that digital um, skill set across the board, not just at the top in terms of coding and building apps, but also in terms of how to use a computer or how to build a functioning network. Um, our membership, like I mentioned, is mainly network operators, and we provide really basic network operation training across the region. It's not that interesting to a lot of development funders because it's not a sexy new new cable that you can cut a ribbon on, but you need to build the skills across the board, um, both in different sectors but also at different skill sets for, for this ecosystem to work. You touch upon something really interesting, and it's, it's really, I think there's going to be an increasing disconnect between labor and uh, wealth production um, and, and, and that, you know, there's going to be a small number of high-value jobs at, the, at one end that's going to, to basically fuel global, global growth and the rest of it, and, for, and, I, and you know, for even people like us over time, it's going to be about keeping us occupied. Work is going to be about, and education is going to be about being a human, keeping occupied, you know, being creative. It's not going to be about, you know, driving economic growth. And that brings me to a question that I want to throw to, to Zija. I'll, I'll, I'll get you to respond to those questions. Um, it's really about the concentration of capital. And that brings us to taxation and redistribution through universal basic income or other mechanisms, if you could talk to that. But Bill, I'll, I'll ask you to address... Which one some... do you want to go to? Do you want to go to that or do you want to go to... No, I want, to, I want you to go to those, uh, to those questions and John as well, and then I'll, I might throw the, my, my question yeah. to Zija. Um, this question of, uh, of how relevant are, are NGOs in the state, um, uh, again, if you're focusing on the wrong thing and you're not linked up with people who are thinking in the way that, that, that cle very nicely laid out, then NGOs and uh, development NGOs and, 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 and uh, development agencies are just missing the boat. They're focusing on the wrong thing. In, in the Midwest, where I come from, it's called shooting, you gotta shoot out ahead of the duck. Otherwise, you never hit the duck. And so thinking forward is very, is very, is very difficult. If you're still fighting the last war, that's another way of, of, of putting it, then you, you just won't be relevant. That's why, that's why that would be the, that's why you, you, would, you would hear that when somebody's talking about um, starting something very new and innovative and they're doing it on their, on their, on their own. Um, on this business of the region, though, just one thing one thing that didn't come up, but we, we should say again. When you look at Southeast Asia, you look at ASEAN countries, they've, they've grown very rapidly. This has come up, in, and it always comes up uh, in, in various AAC panels and in, in the uh, 
uh, and, the, and the keynote speeches and so on. Southeast Asia is, 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 is unique in the world, how fast it's transformed. But that transformation has been driven again. That transformation has been, been driven by export-oriented industrialization and all the conditions that were set domestically to allow that to take place. Um, what is emerging, you, you have, if you separate services from, from fabrication or manufacturing, the making of goods is what's going to move. Is what's going to drop fast. That's as you automate that and it moves, it gets reshored to the north. Uh, the thing that's left and then it's pushing in and becomes where all the the value is is in various kinds of services. Now, service is kind of a lump category. Uh, it, it covers a lot of a, a lot of things, but the globalization of services is really important. That's an opportunity as other as manufacturing jobs, and we're not talking about tomorrow, but we're talking about within a decade, start falling off. Then you, you replace it with some of what John's talking about and and with and with and tapping into globalization of services. The difficulty is that Southeast Asia is extremely open in the movement of stuff and is, is one of the most closed parts of the world in terms of of uh, of of protection of services domestically. So the next stage of development, um, the globalization of services, uh, is going to be is they're, they're, they're something going to miss out on, unless major changes take place. And again, these systems take a long time to to transform. So they've got to transform at a domestic level, but then also the global agreements, the uh, uh, global trade agreements, don't usually have services in them. It's hard to get them in them. It's hard to get agreement. Because advanced countries don't want you to tap into theirs, they don't want in their markets, and developing countries want to protect theirs. Um, so you have you have you have tariff barriers and non-tariff barriers that simply block it. That's in the next round of growth for Southeast Asia. John, would you like to respond? Uh, well, I liked all the questions. I'd like to answer them all, but I'll try to. Just, I'll go through really quickly um, regarding that comment. I think because I was kind of presenting about this digital economy and this innovative class of people. When I waded into the future of work conversation, maybe people perhaps thought that I was thinking everyone's going to learn how to code, but it's not the case. The problem of the future of work is exactly what you say, because some guy or gal in Vietnam or elsewhere is gluing shoes together, and tomorrow someone is going to come to them and say, you have to do data entry on this terminal or you're fired. And if you don't give the resources to, because the businesses probably won't do the retraining, and the resources just aren't there, I think, for traditional institutions to do it all. And so finding new ways for, to, to update policymakers' menu of options with respect to how to do upskilling is really important. Because, again, this issue of, you know, it's not, you're not going to learn how to code. I'm sorry. But you probably can transition to that next level of technical sophistication that's going to be required of you in the region as things consolidate and, and jobs are affected. So I really wanted to just clarify that. Um, the one thing that I wanted to talk briefly about is this idea of losing comparative advantage in the region. And what's interesting to me, having studied this for a very long time, I, I'm ashamed or afraid to even mention how this all began with me, but I've always been interested in technology policy in the Asia Pacific. And I started when Miti in Japan you know, the managed economy issue was such a big 
deal and everyone was, you know, struggling. Should we do this? Should we not do this? What about the tigers? You know, is this the new way of doing things and ordering economies? So it's always been in Asia, I think, a negotiated process. So the, so the, this idea that robots are going to parachute in to the region and everything is going to change instantaneously, I just don't think the governments of the region are going to allow that to happen. So in many respects, they're going to try to tap the brakes. And that's an opportunity for us, again, to give the go back to this issue of enabling the nascent human capital in, in the region and, and trying to push it. To, to, to take over some of the reins of the of the local economies and create new products and services in new ways because digital everything is becoming digital. Software eats the world. That means everything will become ultimately digital that can become digital. And all and that means all these new things like e-health, e-education, uh, the water project that I mentioned, all of these things can be built in the region to solve these very niche problems if you just give the resources to the people to do that. So I think, you know, comparative advantage is going to stay in the region on manufacturing for a long time, and governments will not let that, to the extent that they can, they won't let it happen. Why would you? Only in America do we just kind of let everything go out the door, <laughs> you know. I don't know of any other region that's sort of like all in on this Chicago-style, uh, you know, free marketeering thing. So in this region, I don't think that's going to happen. Nisha? Okay. Um, on the issue of uh, concentration of uh, like uh, capital, return to capital, I think what we observe in the past decade is rising income inequality globally. Uh, and that, ri that rise in income inequality is associated with concentration of um, return uh, to capital owners. Uh, and we also observe not only income inequality, uh, that in income inequality rises, actually wealth inequality also rises. Um, so then, uh, looking ahead, now that we already have relatively high level of income inequality, uh, if uh, the next wave of technical change is to uh, bias uh, against labor uh, and towards capital, uh, and also at least uh, in the short run is biased against low low skill labor towards high skill labor, then that suggests uh, an underlying force that drives further increase in uh, income inequality or wealth inequality. So then, what could be the options uh, government can use? So it's um, it's a it's a hard question because there's always this issue between efficiency versus equity. Uh, when you try to use policy to address equity issues, uh, then it, it, there is the risk that you actually can lose on uh, efficiency. But uh, on the other hand, if you don't address the equity issues, uh, uh, we, we have seen that uh, society with very high uh, level of income inequality doesn't grow, grow rapidly, and there is a lot of political uh, instability uh, issues out there. So there is this trade. We are aware of this. But then for government, what are the options? Uh, firstly, uh, traditional ways to do tax and transfer policy. Uh, then w when we look at tax tra transfer policy, you can tax uh, capital owners uh, to redistribute the income towards uh, low-skill or, 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 or workers who lose jobs and then uh, finance uh, their uh, retraining or, uh, or provide a base of the income for them to uh, get upskilling. So that's uh, traditional uh, tax uh, and transfer policies. But the, the issue here is if you tax capital owners, uh, then there is the issue of uh, the potential of capital uh, flight. So 
say uh, the big companies may not locate their mm -hmm. capital here in one economy, and they locate uh, their uh, uh, capital in other places. If they don't bring businesses here, then there is the, the potential that uh, you can lose out on economic growth because capital input is important for investment is important for growth. So how to balance that out? Um, then the other option is you, you actually tax consumption. That's an indirect tax. Uh, uh, so that some uh, research needs to be done there. Which option is better? So that's tax and transfer. Then we also have uh, the second option that's um, uh, actually um, redistribution of uh, ownership of capital itself. If the issue really is who owns more capital, and some people own more capital, some people own less capital from the starting point, then uh, you can also redistribute, redistribute the ownership of capital. <coughs> but then how to do it? Um, I think uh, for big... Uh, tech companies, uh, actually part of their uh, income or rents uh, come from the access to data. And we, each of us, is actually the owners of data because we generate data. Um, so there is this discussion that maybe uh, when they use our data, we can turn ourselves into, uh, like we, we get, they pay us because they access our data. So, so in, in this way, we become owner of capital. Uh, we, we own part of, because our, da our data, the intangible side of things, now become part of production. And it's, it, put, it, it leads to the rents uh, or uh, earnings of those tech companies. So, but a lot of thinking on that, it's not easy. Uh, and lastly, uh, I think uh, we talk, I mean, when, when we see uh, more displacement of labor, we could see a decrease in wage rate. Um, that's a sign of uh, labor in less demand. But uh, there are a discussion on using minimum uh, wage, uh, like minimum wage policy, like a minimum wage uh, to shore up uh, the income. But uh, we know that when you do minimum wage uh, policies, there is the risk that uh, there is uh, less employment uh, if the real uh, equilibrium wage is lower than uh, what the minimum wage is set at. So it's hard, very hard. Uh, uh, th uh, there's always trade-offs. And then uh, I think government uh, needs to think about what's the optimal uh, combination of policies yeah, looking ahead. Okay, it looks like we're out of time. Um, this is only the beginning of a conversation, obviously. <laughs> this issue is not going to go away. Um, and I suppose the, the key message I take out is captured in, in Bill's little image of shooting out ahead of the duck. Um, and uh, all we know is what lies ahead is, is unpredictable, that we, we have to try to anticipate those challenges the best we can. Anyway, um, please join me in thanking our panellists. You have been listening to a podcast from the Development Policy Centre. For more information on our work, visit our website at devpolicy.anu.edu.au. To join the conversation on Australian aid, Papua New Guinea, the Pacific and Global Development Policy, visit our blog at devpolicy.org. At the blog, you can also sign up to our newsletter to get all the latest updates, or you can connect with us on social media. Thanks for listening. <laughs>